This is a podcast about the manosphere, so it may contain references to extremist misogyny and violence, and it will definitely contain lots of swears. This podcast episode is the second in a discussion around men's mental health and will contain discussions of suicide. So please look after yourself and listen only if you feel you're in the right space too. Hello and welcome to Manosphere Debunked, the podcast where we debunk the Manosphere. My name is Aileen Barrett, I'm a writer and I am on Instagram at Tinder Translators. And my name is Dan, otherwise known as the Narcissist Psychologist on Instagram. Um, welcome back to part two of a discussion around men's mental health. Yeah, if you haven't listened Two episodes ago was part one of our little series on men's mental health and some of the unhelpful rhetoric that has come out of the manosphere around it. We talked about the idea um, that there was no funding for men's mental health last time. And today, Dan is going to take us through, well, what are you going to take us through, Dan? So today, I want to think a little bit more about the fact that when the conversation of men's mental health is had, particularly online, because I guess that's kind of where you mostly see it. It only ever seems to revolve around suicide statistics, which again is really helpful. We don't want to say that people shouldn't talk about suicide because obviously it's something that affects uh, men at quite a high rate. And, you know, there are high levels of um, fatality related to acts of suicide. So that's obviously a very helpful thing to talk about. But issues of mental health are so much more than just suicide. Alongside that, Mm -hmm. there's only ever a fairly one-dimensional discussion around suicide and men engaging in in suicidal acts that doesn't necessarily seem to take an intersectional um, approach to it. It seems very sort of uniform, one size fits all, and it never kind of really seems to encompass much social, cultural understanding of the things that might impact on men's decisions to take their own life. So I thought Mm -hmm. as... We like to discuss very cheerful topics. I might sort of take you through that. Yeah, yeah. it's just really important at the beginning to say that we're not trying to disprove that men disproportionately die by suicide. We are just wanting to round out the discussion and sort of give it some context and a bit more nuance than it has. That The way it's coloured because of the sexism and the the anger, I suppose, um, from those people kind of misogynistic portions of the internet means that you miss quite a lot in the discussion that would be useful to have there. Mm -hmm. But we've got a psychologist to talk (laughs) us through it. Yay. Yay. Aren't you all very lucky? Okay. (laughs) So like I said at the start, the narrative around men's mental health usually seems to be around the fact that men, particularly in the UK, because that's where we are and that's our kind of context, are three times more likely than women to take their own life. Again, which I said is true, Mm -hmm. but the conversation around men's mental health for me extends a bit further than just rates of suicide. But before we get into that, when I talk about rates of suicide, the recommended way of doing this is to think um, about it in terms of deaths per 100,000. The reason for this is that because it standardizes the rates of suicide and makes it comparable across populations. So for example, according to the latest data by the Samaritan's Charity, which was, I think, updated in 2021, the rate of suicide for women is 5.5 per 100,000. And for men, 
it is 15.8 mm-hmm. per 100,000, which then is 2.9 or three times higher than the woman's rate of suicide. So that's where we get that statistics from. Right. So therefore, whenever I refer to different populations and their rates of suicide, I'll talk about it in terms of rates per 100,000 because then that kind of gives us, gives us a bit of a way to kind of measure the difference. Okay. Yeah. So the thing that is often left out of the conversation around mental health is the fact that we all have mental health. We can all go through experiences that can then impact on our mental health, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the idea then that mental health exists on a spectrum. So there's a psychologist called Dr. Emma Hepburn, um, otherwise known as the the psychology mom, where she's got a great little image where it's a a spectrum. Um, And on the one hand, it's got uh, mental well-being, which is obviously where we'd all like to be. And there are different ways in which we can go about looking after our mental well-being. And then on the very extreme end is mental illness. And I think when men's mental health is talked about in terms of suicide, I think it's framed as something that is done only when men are at the very end of the spectrum, sort of towards down the mental illness side, which obviously it can be. And I guess, you know, realistically, Mm -hmm. when people are at the point where they will want to sort of take their own life, it's probably very easy to say that they're not necessarily in the best mental state that they are. But I guess the idea Mm -hmm. is that when conversations are had, I think the common misconception is that somebody must be sort of mentally ill or have you know some serious kind of serious depressive episode but I guess it's just a Mm -hmm. little bit more than that yeah which is what we're going to get into now Mm -hmm. very briefly I'm going to talk to you about something called the interpersonal theory of suicide have you ever heard of that nope nope okay I don't think so okay well this is quite good for me because usually when I say have you heard of that or do you know what I mean by that you usually then go into quite a nice (laughs) monologue and then you just kind of talk about the whole thing and I'm like well what the fuck am I supposed to do now (laughs) yeah there you go you need to talk about psychology more no spoilers this episode exactly so it feels like I'm actually going to teach you something for a change Right. So the interpersonal theory of suicide is a model developed by Mm -hmm. some psychologists in 2010 that seeks to understand why individuals may engage in suicidal behavior. So it puts forward the idea that there are three conditions that need to occur for somebody to attempt, I guess, near lethal or lethal suicide acts. The first mm-hmm. one of these conditions is thwarted belongingness. So what I'm going to do, Aileen, is I'm going to send you mm-hmm. some notes from uh, a blog I've written about this. Sorry to mm-hmm. you know promote my own work again, but I have taken the time to sort of write about this. So what I'm going to do... <laughs> the narcissism is just... So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you some pieces of my own written work for you to read out. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to send you is about thwarted belongingness. Okay. Thwarted belongingness is based on the concept that as human beings, we all desire connection and want to belong, to be accepted by others. However, through various internal factors, i.e. perceptions we have of ourselves and external factors, i.e. messages we receive from the environment around us, we can feel disconnected, separate or isolated. In fact, it has been noted that social isolation is arguably the strongest and most reliable predictor of suicidal ideation, attempts and lethal suicidal behaviour among samples varying in age, nationality and clinical severity. Um, And that last bit was a quote from Auden et al. in 2010. Which I assume is the... Yes, those are the people who came up with this theory. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, it's the idea that people can feel so isolated from somebody else that they just feel like they don't belong and they just feel completely by themselves mm-hmm. um, and not connected to, to anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's the next bit for you. Okay. Oh my God. This is going to make me sad. This is going to make me really emotional. Okay. Linked to, but distinct from thwarted belongingness, is the concept of perceived burdensomeness, which is defined by good old Wikipedia as the belief that one is a burden on others or society. The emphasis here is on the belief of one's burden on others, meaning that those whom suicidal individuals believe they are a burden to, for example, family, friends, spouses, partners, might not actually see the suicidal individual as a burden at all. Alongside these beliefs of liability to others, it is noted that perceived burdensomeness, that is hard to say, (laughs) is additionally characterised by effectively laden cognitions of self-hatred, i.e. feelings of self-hate accompanied by low self-esteem and feelings of guilt or shame. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. The idea being that In order for somebody to come to the point where they might start having suicidal ideation, they have to feel really isolated from others, disconnected from others, and they also have to feel like a real burden. Now, Mm -hmm. it's possible and quite likely that when somebody has mental health difficulties, such as depression or high levels of anxiety, or potentially other more sort of less known or less commonly thought about mental illnesses, such as schizophrenia or bipolar or things like that, it's very possible that they may feel alien and isolated from others, and they also may feel like a burden. So absolutely that fits. But feeling like a burden and feeling alone isn't enough for somebody to actually commit an act of suicide. What they then need to do is get what's called acquired capability, which is basically the idea that humans inherently fear death. So therefore, by and large, we'll engage in behaviors to avoid fatal outcomes. So therefore, to get to a place Mm -hmm. where somebody is willing to engage in suicidal acts, they need to acquire the capability to take their own life, which can happen through a various number of ways, usually previous acts of self-harm or previous suicidal attempts. And usually when we talk about acquired capability, and I think one of the reasons why men are potentially more successful is because they will usually use more lethal means. So those are the three kind of components that need, that are needed. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible then that these three components might be present for somebody who is experiencing sort of mental illness at the very sort of extreme end of the mental health spectrum. Mm-hmm. However, the authors of the interpersonal um, theory of suicide also list a number of risk factors that are associated with acts of uh, suicide. And mental illness is one of them, but it also lists previous Mm -hmm. suicide attempts, social isolation, physical illness, unemployment, family conflict, family Mm -hmm. history of suicide, impulsivity, incarceration, sense of hopelessness, seasonal variation, difficulties with sleep, child abuse, exposure to suicide, homelessness, combat exposure, and issues with self-esteem and shame. That makes sense because a lot of them, those situations probably affect men disproportionately. Mm-hmm. For example, like combat exposure and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Absolutely. And obviously the kind of social isolation thing of like men not forming like close friendships with, with each other mm-hmm. in, in general. There are women who find it very hard to form close friendships too, but, you know, um, in general, I think, yeah, that that does kind of make sense. It's not that, you know, as we said, like, there's no funding for men's mental health or, 
you know, whatever. But those factors in general mm-hmm. could, some of those factors could apply to men more, for sure. Also, the CDC website in America breaks the sort of suicidal risk factors down to individual relationship and community risk factors. In terms of the relationship risk factors, they list bullying, a family or loved one's history of suicide, a loss of relationships, high conflict or violent relationships or social isolation. Mm-hmm. And then the community risk factors are lack of access to healthcare, suicide cluster in a community, um, community violence, historical trauma, discrimination. And then, oh, sorry, there's four, there's four. So it also lists societal risk factors, which include the stigma associated with help seeking, easy access to lethal means of suicide amongst people at risk, and unsafe mm. media portrayals of suicide. So I guess the idea then is that when we talk about suicide and we talk about suicide rates in men, mental illness and sort of really significant poor mental health is definitely a factor. But it's not just the only factor. There are a lot of things that can occur in a man's life that would um, sort of lead them to, you know, make the decision to, to, to do that. You know, it's just important to highlight the distinction between things that can impact somebody's mental health and it's not just as simple as somebody has depression so therefore they are more likely to take their own life it's a myriad of very sort of intrinsic factors that kind of all pull together to um get -hmm. somebody to a place where they feel like they have to take their own life yeah that makes total sense i think yeah a lot of a lot of it will be environmental in some way or another Mm. so the other thing that i think that is often left out of the discussion of men's suicide rates is the idea of intersectionality. So, well, would you like to give an overview of what intersectionality is? Just because I guess you might be a bit more well-versed in it than I am. Intersectionality um, is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a black feminist. I think it was mm. she wrote, she first started writing about it in the 1980s. And the idea is that um, the ways in which we are oppressed or privileged intersect. So, I mean, some people become, it becomes very individualized, but it was actually talking about societal um, intersections of, of oppression. So, so for example, for me, I am a, I'm, I'm a woman, but I'm a white woman. And so my experience of womanhood is affected by the intersection between my race and my gender. So looking at kind of how all of the uh, privileges or oppressions, the, the identities that we are given by society intersect in order to like be enacted on different parts of the population differently is kind of what the basic idea of what intersectionality is although it's you know a complex idea that's sort of been flattened by social media a bit but that's all ideas really (laughs) (laughs) so you're right so and then i guess in this case it's the idea that the reasons why somebody so if we're thinking about the interpersonal theory of suicide and if we're thinking about the fact that there are multiple risk factors that can exist as to why somebody might um commit an act of suicide the fact that um men also exist within various different kind of like protected characteristics so they all have different sort of uh, races Mm -hmm. cultures ethnic backgrounds um, ages they all come from different socioeconomic um, parts of life things like that that kind of consideration I think is missing quite a lot when we talk about both men's mental health and also the suicide rates the only protected characteristic or the only kind of level of intersection that I'm aware of that does get a lot of discussion is of age, where it's often highlighted that the population of men over their 50s are at a higher risk of suicide and their rates of deaths per 100 is 22.5. Bloody hell. 
this per mm-hmm. 100,000. See, so. I, that's, I guess because it's the biggest killer of, of men, younger men, I thought that the rate was higher in younger men, but obviously I, I'm wrong. There you go. All right. I think it's probably just that less young men are dying of other things. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why true. it's the, the top rate, you know, the top thing. I think that's what it is. Yeah. I'm going to, I'll send you another part of my um, blog to read out. Mm-hmm. Okay. There you go. Okay. Ooh. I got to press read more on this. So lock in. There is very little consideration of what the racial or ethnic composition is of the males who make up the higher rates of death by suicide. It is not that suicide is not considered within racial and ethnic minority population, nor that there isn't any research on the topic, but rather that it is not necessarily considered when discussing the wider topic of male suicide. For example, A recent meta-analysis looked at 42 studies on the rates of suicide amongst ethnic minorities and found that the pooled suicide rate amongst ethnic minorities is 12.1 deaths per 100,000, which is slightly higher when compared to the overall UK population rate. However, prevalence rates ranged from 1.2 to 139.7 deaths per 100,000, which is a huge range. When looking at the rates for ethnic minority males, the average prevalence rate jumps up to 22.6 deaths per 100,000, compared to 15.8 per 100,000 males in the UK general population, and which is on par with the prevalence rate of men in their 50s, the often considered most at risk category. Mm. So what are your thoughts on that? The fact that the numbers are higher doesn't surprise me because Mm -hmm. I have a a basic understanding of how uh, racialized people's mental health is impacted by racism in in, in society uh, and lots of other factors. Well, the kind of the fact that we have a, a, a white supremacist society uh, impacts a lot of factors in your life, including things like employment or poverty. And so it doesn't surprise me that the numbers are higher. And I suppose it also doesn't surprise me that people don't talk about it as much because uh-huh. racist society, but that's quite significant. And I think the fact that it's as significant as, you know, the older men who maybe are focused on mm-hmm. is quite telling, like in terms of like who we value um, what we see as a crisis and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, I also, I know that black people are more likely to be kind of medicalized for their mental health. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right word. I, I know from reading Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by mm-hmm. Renny Edo Lodge that black men are three times as likely to be sectioned than white men. Because when people are sectioned, it's often that they think that they're a danger to themselves or the wider community. And because of the stereotypes around mm-hmm. um, black men, that is, they are perceived as, as dangerous more than white men, which when you think about all the harm white, white men have done the world, it's pretty fucking ironic, isn't it? So it kind of doesn't surprise me, but it's also like, Really shit, if that makes sense. That's what yeah, I think no, about it. Yeah, absolutely. So according to a fact sheet on the Mind Charity website, what you were saying about black men being disproportionately discriminated against in terms of the Mental Health Act, according to the NHS Digital 2021 Mental Health Act Statistics Annual, a disproportionate number of people from black, Asian and minority ethnic communities are detained under the Mental Health Act at rates... And rates of detention. Oh, sorry, I'm going to start that again. 
a disproportionate number of people from black, Asian, and minority ethnic communities are detained under the Mental Health Act. Rates of detention for black or black British groups are over four times that of white groups. Fuck, it's even more than I thought. Yeah. While community treatment orders for black or black British groups are over 10 times those of white groups. Do you know what a community treatment order is? Um, is that when you have a, a mental health team that sort of come, you, you kind of have it in, in the community. Exactly. So I guess what that says is that in the community, black men or sort of people from black groups are 10 times more likely to be monitored or supervised under the Mental Health Act whilst in the community more than um, mm -hmm. their white counterparts. So that's like a legal thing, like yeah. a, it's not yeah. voluntary. So they're essentially being managed under the legal framework of the Mental Health Act whilst in the community. And I think the thing with the community treatment order is right. if somebody isn't concordant with their mental health treatment in the community, they run the risk of then being sort of detained back in hospital. So 10 times more likely. That's mad. Yeah. So going back to what you were saying about um, men's black men's experiences of uh, mental illness. So according to the NHS Digital Mental Health and Wellbeing Survey of 2014, black men are more likely to experience symptoms of psychosis than any other ethnic group. 3.2% compared to 0.3% of white men and 1.3 of Asian men. Wow. Yeah. It's like. Was that 10 times as many? Yeah, exactly. Which again is something that isn't necessarily spoken about when we talk about men's mental health issues in the wider context. Mm, yeah. And then finally, this is interesting as well. So in a report called Against All Odds from the Center of Mental Health released in 2017, it notes that boys from African and Caribbean communities in the UK have lower levels of mental health problems at age 11 compared to white or mixed heritage boys, which is you know, quite positive. Yeah. However, national data shows that African and Caribbean men in the UK are much more likely to develop some type of mental health problem during adulthood. For example, symptoms relating to schizophrenia and, to a lesser extent, post-traumatic stress disorder. This does not occur in countries with a predominantly black population, and it appears to be an environmental risk related to the experiences in Northern Europe and the United States. Oh, God, that's so fucking heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. Not like they're actually in a yeah. better position when they're out of childhood. I think the thing that was really interesting for me is that obviously when people are in a majority black population country, mm -hmm. um, they don't experience that kind of stuff, which yeah. I wonder, there's two things, obviously. So there's something about potentially the experiences of racism and oppression within a white Western country, but then mm -hmm. also potentially the way in which the experiences of black Black people is potentially pathologized and over-medicalized when in that same white Western European context and how the practices or beliefs or ways of being are seen differently and seen again, like you were saying, as dangerous or different or worth than sectioning somebody over. Yeah, so it's kind of a, like a double-edged sword is that there is a higher instance of actually having poor mental health, but at the same time, the way mm -hmm. that you are perceived means that potentially it's treated differently or treated more aggressively, I suppose, is the word for being sectioned. Uh, should we say what we mean by being sectioned? I don't think we've said it. Yeah. Do you want to explain what that means? No, you say it because I will get it wrong. Okay. For anyone that doesn't know, when we talk about being sectioned, what that means is being placed under either a section two or a section three of the Mental Health Act. And what that means is that by law, if you experience 
mental health difficulties to the point where a set of doctors feel that you are kind of at risk to yourself or others, um, what they'll do is they'll manage you under a section. And that usually means in hospital at kind of like the extreme end of things or sort of in the community under a mental health community treatment order like was spoken about mm-hmm. earlier on. So that is generally what we mean when we refer to sectioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I guess as a final point in terms of thinking about mental health and mental illness and access to treatment and things like that. So a Care Quality Commission released a report in 2010 that noted that black people are more likely to access treatment through the police or criminal justice system. Um, Black men and mixed black groups are between 20% and 83% more likely to be referred to mental health support from the criminal justice system than average. Cool. Yeah. I mean, not that cool, but... Understood. Yeah. Like, like I was saying earlier, this kind of conversation around around men's mental health and access to mental health care and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, it only ever seems to sort of have a particular view or a particular sort of framing. And I guess based yeah. on all of this, there has been comments made by somebody called Emily Yu, who has written that... In light of the UK's recent and historic immigration practice and policy, which produces Britishness as synonymous with whiteness, the paucity of ethnicity in suicide reporting and thus the prevention campaigns such statistics generate translates to the male suicide crisis being a crisis for white men. Which again, you know, it's not to yeah. it's not to it's yeah. not to highlight that obviously white men and don't experience difficulty because something else that isn't necessarily taken into account is also the socioeconomic or class status of people who uh, are at a higher risk of suicide. So, in an Australian report examining the relationship between socioeconomic status and mortality, it was noted that in 2020, the overall suicide rate for those living in the most disadvantaged areas were twice that of those living in the highest socioeconomic areas. So the statistics of that were 18.1 mm-hmm. deaths per 100,000 compared to 8.6 deaths per 100,000 respectively. And similarly, in a 2017 report commissioned by the Samaritans, which is a UK suicide prevention charity, by the way, just in case anybody didn't know, they summarized that people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged or live in areas of socioeconomic deprivation have an increased risk of suicidal behavior. And then when they explored gender, the report noted that men are more vulnerable to the adverse effects of economic recession, including suicide risk, than women. And they further noted that men in the lowest social class living in the most deprived areas are up to 10 times more likely at risk of suicide than those living in the most affluent areas. Wow, 10 times. Yeah, and and makes sense, really. Mm Because sometimes people just don't feel like they can cope with their lives. I mean, I think that if there was a universal basic income, general mental health would improve greatly. You know, if everybody got universal basic income... Um, which is just the idea that everyone gets a bit of money every month mm-hmm. um, from the government. Uh, I reckon that would uh, sort out a lot of people's, you know, more environmental mental health issues. And even if you are prone, like, for example, like me, to anxiety and depression, those kind of environmental issues can really affect it and, like, exacerbate it. Certainly, that's certainly my experience. Mm-hmm. So in summary, then, whilst men <laughs> definitely are at risk of higher rates of suicide, the conversation around that is a lot more layered 
than just that. There are a lot of individual, social, relational issues that can mm-hmm. t- that need to be taken into account. And I guess overall, the idea that when we talk about men's mental health, it seems to be framed in one particular way. And again, doesn't necessarily seem seem to take into mm-hmm. account the kind of intersectional nature of, you know, as we've talked about, uh, like things like race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's yeah, just really important. And I I would I do think it's it's quite true that like sometimes men's mental health stuff is like coded as white in in certain ways when you think about who mm-hmm. you see speak about it and whose you know deaths you see sort of like mourned more and stuff like that. So yeah, I think it's just an incredibly complex issue and addressing it in the way that's you know there's no funding and people don't care and men are just on their own. It's just inaccurate when you look at it in that kind of societal context. And actually, a lot of the changes that feminists would like to make in society might help those aspects of men's mental health mm-hmm. as well as helping women. So dun dun dun. And obviously, it's I mean like when people talk about men's mental health online, I often see women saying, "Well, actually, you know, women attempt suicide at a higher rate than men," and uh, that's true. But I think it. I don't like it when it's used in that adversarial way like well actually men, you know women are so it's yes of course they are like women are suffering too and women do attempt suicide at higher rates quite a lot higher rates mm-hmm. than men and women also have higher rates of self-harm and eating disorders and things like that and we don't generally talk about women's mental health as a separate category which is interesting in itself but I think it's just like it's kind of worth mentioning that mental health encompasses more than you know death rates of suicide Mm. whilst also saying that that is an important factor to look at but I don't like it when it's used as a clapback that's kind of in a really insensitive way to respond when we're talking about people dying from suicide so yeah um but I imagine there'll be some people listening going but women demand it more into their uh, whatever device they're listening on. Mm-hmm. So I thought it's worth kind of just mentioning it. And I think you're right. There is there is a, a tendency for for that kind of statistic or rhetoric to kind of make itself known or rear its head in the conversation of men's mental health and men's suicide rates. But that is something that we will mm-hmm. think about later on, that, that particular aspect of suicide and suicide rates and suicidality when we think about the next episode mm-hmm. in which we'll start to think about the idea of no one caring about men's mental health. So we'll explore that mm-hmm. um, a little bit more. Yeah. Not as a clapback kind of a way, but as a sort of very balanced, let's look at the kind of whole situation in relation to mental health, um, men's mental health and men's suicide rates and campaigns uh, for that. But that will be that will be explored in about two weeks' time. Yeah, and we've managed to smoothly transition to trailing the next part of this series at the end of an episode, which is unlike us. Yeah, go us. If you enjoyed today's episode of Mansphere Debunked, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you listen. You can also send questions, suggestions and thoughts to manosphere-debunked at gmail.com. All of the materials referenced in this podcast are linked in the show notes. Just to check in, are you okay? Because obviously I know that this is quite a heavy subject and I know that obviously historically you've talked about the fact that this is something that 
you've experienced and encountered and i know that it's just a bit heavy to kind yeah. of list all the risk factors <laughs> no it's just it is actually quite interesting that because yeah no it's i'm okay i've got a knot in my stomach but that's about it i think it's just uh it's yeah it's just not a nice subject is it but um but yeah it's quite interesting i, I might say something about it on the actual pod but it, it's quite interesting the the like factors i'm like oh yeah i can i can see that um mm. So. Okay, cool. I just thought I'd check in just to make sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>